Uh, if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 13, we'll see some of that that Michael just read in this passage. I just want to read verses 14 through 23. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter into his house to take anything out. And let one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Pray that God will add a blessing of his word. We have read much of it today. In our chapter study so far in Mark 13, we've been looking at Jesus' answer to the questions from his disciples about the temple and when it would be destroyed, right? In their question, it seems, in their question, it seems obvious that they assumed that with the destruction of the temple would come the end of the age, right? We talked about this a lot, and I think they assumed this because in Jesus' words, and now recognizing that he truly is the Messiah, at least they believe he is, they saw that in those Old Testament prophecies, much like the one we just read, when the Messiah comes, judgment comes, and the end of the age. And so what we have to determine is what does the end of the age mean, and what age is it, and those kind of things, and we'll get to that hopefully eventually. But they did assume this. In fact, Matthew records in his version of this, Matthew 24, that their question included these words, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So it was obvious that they thought this was happening. Mark, however, just says the question simply was, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, many believe that Jesus' answer to this question went straight to a time off in the future, and that the remainder of this whole chapter, Mark 13, after verse 2, has to do completely with the second coming of Christ and nothing to do with those in attendance or listening to Christ at the time. Others, however, think that Jesus begins talking about the destruction of the temple in verse 2 and eventually answers the question transitioning to the second coming of Christ and as I told you the last time, the jumping off point at where does he start talking about the second coming can pretty much be anywhere in the passage. There's people that believe all over the place about when does he actually stop talking about the first century and begin talking about the second coming of Christ. And um, some of that I will leave to your interpretation. Some of it I will give you some ideas and try to help you think through it. As I said, this is a very difficult passage to interpret. And it's not getting any easier. 
if you approach the passage determined to squeeze your end time view into it, you can make that happen. And a lot of people do. It's easy to squeeze whatever you want to into it or make this squeeze into what you already have. But if one just simply interprets the passage within the context, it seems difficult not to see Jesus might just be answering the question that he's asked. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your what will be the sign that they are about to be accomplished? In fact, all three gospel accounts record that first question just that way. When will these things be? What things? The, destru- the destruction of the temple, right? They said, look at these beautiful stones. And Jesus said, well, they're about to be destroyed. Well, when will these things be? All three gospels have that specific wording. It's hard not to conclude, therefore, that at least in some way, Jesus had to be answering that question about when will these things happen? When will this temple be destroyed? He's doing this along the way. In fact, Luke records um, in his gospel that when Jesus, before his triumphal entry, when he was approaching Jerusalem, this is how Luke records that. Jesus drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, "Would Would that you, Jerusalem had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will tear down, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is prior to this passage, right? So Jesus had been saying these things. And no doubt... He's probably been teaching these things in times that we're not privy to. As John said, there's a lot of things that Jesus said and taught that weren't recorded. If everything he did and said had been recorded, there's not enough books in the world to take it all down. So there's no doubt this has been on the disciples' minds. And for whatever reason, they finally get brave enough at this point to say, okay then, Jesus, tell us when are these things going to take place? And when will they, what will the sign be of their accomplishment that is about to be accomplished? And so the last time we look at the possibility in verses 5 through 13 that all these things could have easily taken place between the the days between Jesus' resurrection and 70 AD when the temple was physically, literally destroyed and Jerusalem wiped out. No doubt. We we walked through that passage and saw, in fact, a lot of those things can be found word for word in the book of Acts, that the people of God endured these things. Those things happened. And so now when we get to verse 14... We read this, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be, in parentheses, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus takes this prophecy spoken by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, which Michael read, and he applies at least some of its fulfillment to this Now, again, there are numerous scholarly opinions as to what the abomination of desolation means. And it has a lot to do with what your view of the end times will be. I can't go into all of it, but most of us have been taught, and I plan to hopefully do this a little more next next week, if I can get it together next week. We've mostly been taught the idea of dispensationalism. And so this abomination of desolation will take place three and a half years into the Great Tribulation, right, of those seven years, halfway through 
with the Antichrist doing something in the newly built temple to cause this abomination of desolations. A lot of people believe it does refer to some kind of pagan desecration of the temple. Now, some people believe that this was fulfilled before Jesus even came. Several hundred years before Christ came, there was a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes from the Seleucid Empire. He conquered Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on a pagan altar in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so certainly people in that day thought, well, there's Daniel's prophecy right there. It has to be. What more desecration could happen than a pig being sacrificed in the Holy of Holies? But obviously, Jesus wouldn't be talking about that because he's at least answering the question, when will these things be in the future? They're going to be in the future. How far in the future is to be determined? Some people, others believe that this was fulfilled just a few years after Christ's death and resurrection, around AD 40, when a man by the nickname of Caligula, a Roman emperor who was short-lived, a lot of them were, they rose to power and then were murdered, and then somebody else rose to power. Caligula was one of those. But he tried to erect a statue of himself in the temple in 40 AD. A lot of people thought, okay, well, the abomination of desolations is happening now, 40 AD. But according to Josephus, who was the Jewish historian that lived in this first century, he believed that the desecration when under the Roman general Titus, the temple was destroyed in all Jerusalem. He saw that as a fulfillment. Now, this is extra biblical, of course. This is history. But Josephus was there, an eyewitness at the time, having been captured. He was a Jew, captured by the Romans. And the Romans at this time were using him to try to negotiate with Jerusalem for their surrender. In other words, Roman, the Romans were wanting Jerusalem to surrender rather than them attacking them. However, we know that the Jews refused to surrender. And not only was the temple of Jerusalem crushed, but all of Jerusalem was crushed. In fact, it was so crushed, in some places, the temple foundations were even ordered dug up so that there would be no evidence that it ever even was there. It was utterly destroyed. I tend to agree with this interpretation of this passage, especially when you follow the text in all three Gospels. Up to this point, the gospel accounts pretty much agree almost word for word. In other words, the, the stuff we studied last time through verse 13, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're almost word for word the same. Their word order may be different. They may use a few different words. But all the stuff that they see coming that, they, that Jesus' answer pronounces are almost the same up to verse 14. Mark says what I just read to you. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Matthew 24 sounds almost identical. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. But Luke records it this way. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, it would be hard for me not to read that in its equivalent with those other two passages and not see that for Luke, he saw the abomination of desolation as the Jerusalem being surrounded by the Roman armies about to destroy it. 
And I think that's why Josephus saw that fulfillment as well. Now, you don't have to agree with that, but it seems like the natural progression of the use of abomination of desolation in Luke's description that the surrounding armies are the abomination and the desecration is about to take place along with Josephus' description, it seems like that could be possibly what Jesus is talking about, very likely. And in addition, the very next words certainly make sense in this context. Jesus says, when you see this, flee to the mountains. Now, if you know anything about first century history, or if you just read about it, you'll see this is very contrary to what the ancient world would have considered doing. In other words, if your city was about to be attacked, guess what everybody did? Y'all seen this in movies. Even there was, a, there was one Lord of the Rings movie where this great fortress in the mountains, when the enemy was coming, what did everybody do? They retreat into the walls and close the gate, right? That's the mentality. If my city's going to be attacked, the safety is within the walls. But Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, and if Luke is correct and Josephus is correct, when you see the army surrounding the city, don't go into the city. Flee. Go to the mountains. Now, this is interesting that Jesus says, don't retreat like normal, but run for the hills. Because when the Romans invaded Jerusalem, or placed them under siege and then, then invaded them. It was packed with people from all outside the city who saw what was happening and they did come into the city, into the gates. And so all of a sudden the city was slammed full of people. And history says that one or over 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered or had horrible deaths from this siege in invasion, 1.1 million. However, we also know that many, if not most, of those who claimed to be followers of Christ at that time were because they listened to what Christ said and they fled to the mountains. And they were saved, as Jesus said they would be. Now, I thought that's interesting, and perhaps, and I couldn't find this anywhere in reading other commentators. Maybe that's why in parenthesis Jesus says, let the reader understand. Because those are Jesus' words. It's not an addition by the gospel writers. It's a direct quote. Jesus saying, let the reader understand. Perhaps, hey, ordinarily you would run into the city, but I'm saying get out. So you need to understand this. Don't be confused. I don't know. It seemed like it's, it's very plausible. And so the warning makes... The warning of making haste or fleeing continues in verses 15 through 18. He goes on and says, if you're on the housetop, don't go down. Don't even go and take time to get stuff out. If you see the abomination of desolation, if you see what's going on, leave. If you're in the field, don't come back into the city. Take your cloak, get out. Woe for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. He even says, pray that it doesn't happen in winter obvious, for obvious reasons. You're leaving all the comforts of your home. You're, you're going into the mountains. And then we get to verse 19. For in those days, 
There will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now here's another one of those verses which many teach this is future, this has not happened yet. And maybe that's true. But again, in the immediate context, if at this point Jesus has been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and all that's about to come, the judgment of God that's about to take place, then the tribulation of those days would seem again naturally to be about the same time frame and not something, not, he's just not jumping suddenly into a way far off future event. It could characterize the tribulation of the entire church age, the age we're in. And many believe it does refer not just to the first century, but to every age until Jesus does come back. So that in various places and various times, tribulation and persecution for the church will intensify and become greater and greater. In fact, one commentator, uh, G.K. Bill, believes that this verse does refer to the first century, but that tribulation will continue until the end and so that by the time Christ returns, tribulation will be universal. And so the idea of great tribulation, why is it greater and greater, is that it just won't be in pockets, it will be the world over. <coughs> Maybe so. I can definitely live with that interpretation, that it had a dual fulfillment. One then, and perhaps this age that we're in, and I believe there are other places that would suggest this as well that tribulation will be characteristic of the kingdom and the people of God until Christ returns, right? But it seems that in the immediate context, tribulation in Jerusalem was going to be very intense. Jesus is being serious here. Now, the best news is, he said, the Lord cuts it short for the sake of his people. But if this tribulation does have current implications for us and even future. It's still comforting to know that it will be cut short for the sake of the elect of God. So no matter what kind of tribulation we endure, God will not allow it to overcome his people and deceive them or trick them. But I think it's possible from everything I can discern that what Jesus is using here, he's quoting in the Old Testament, I believe, and he's using hyperbole, just a descriptive way of pointing out that, hey, this is going to be bad. And uh, some proof for that, I believe, is to consider these passages. There's quite a few of them. I'll tell you what they are, but I'm, I'm going to quote them. Not, you don't have to try to turn, but I'll tell it to you if you want to write them down. Exodus eleven six, for example. There shall be a great cry. This is during the, um, the plagues of Egypt. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Exodus nine eighteen, still the plagues. This is the death of the firstborn. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hell to fall, such as never been in Egypt from that day it was founded, the day it was founded until now. Joel 2, 1 through 2, referring to judgment of God. Below a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, 
like blackness. They are spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will it be again after them through the years of all generations. Ezekiel 5 and 9, And because of all your abominations, Israel, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. You see, this is not the first time it's been said, is what I'm trying to show you. These things, this language is used. Perhaps one of the most intriguing places, 2 Kings 18 and 5, referring to Hezekiah. Good Hezekiah, remember? He trusted in the Lord, the Bible says, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Now that's interesting. If this is not hyperbole, then we're about to have a problem because the Bible's about to contradict itself. Because it says there will never be another one like him among all the kings of Judah after him. But about five chapters later in 2 Kings 23 and 25, we read about Josiah. What does it say about him? Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So they said the same thing about two kings in a row. Never been one like him before him, never be one like after him. But then after him, there's never been one like before him. So we have to say, if Jesus' words in Mark 13 could not be hyperbole, then what do we do with these things? I think it's just a way, a descriptive, the Hebrew language, like the Greek language, so uh, colorful and descriptive and just using ways to make the point stick, right? Because a lot of people say, well, look at that, what it says. Obviously, that has not happened. It has never been the worst tribulation that could ever have been on planet Earth. But there was in Egypt, and there was in Israel. And so possibly what he is saying is, it's going to be bad. And I'm going to tell you this, it's probably never been worse than it was for the people that were experiencing it, right? I say this often. I mean, the people we pray for every week in China or India or wherever it is, if you're in church and somebody comes in and shoots your pastor in front of you who happened to be one of the congregant's husband and more congregant's father, could tribulation get much worse than that? I don't know that it could. I don't know. I think you could say that's the worst tribulation I've ever seen up to this point. The idea, I think, is in that. I think that's where Jesus' words are going here and pointing. Hey, this is bad. And I think he's pulling from this idea that's been put in Scripture to say the judgment of God is a big deal and real. And when it comes, it's bad. It's not fun. You don't want to be under the judgment of God. You don't want to be under this tribulation persecution but if you are know this if the people of god you will not be alone and god will sustain you and get you through it even if you die you'll ultimately be rewarded right because you'll be with god so anyways after jesus says this for in those days there will be such tribulations not been seen since the beginning of creation that god created until now and never will be thankfully he cut them short or no human will be saved but for the sake of the elect he did this he goes right back to this idea. Be on guard. Because if anyone says to you during this time, hey, here's Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. Because false Christ and false prophets will arise to perform signs and wonders and lead astray many, if possible, even the elect. 
Now, I think this is interesting. Jesus says, hey, this time's going to be so bad. Awful time of tribulation. And guess what happens in the worst times of tribulation? False prophets. Can we not all agree with this? Tough times make breeding ground for false prophets and false Christs. How many predictions did you hear in the last presidential election that didn't come true? How many predictions and wild-eyed prophecies did you hear during COVID? How many did you read about yesterday thumbing through Instagram or whatever, social media? And so Christ goes immediately to this. He started with this. Don't let anybody deceive you. Then he tells them all these things are going to happen. And he goes right back to this. Be on guard. Because when things get tough and things get bad, I mean, it's like uh, Satan just ramps up the efforts to deceive. Because now people are hungry for something. They need something to hold on to. And unfortunately for the people of God, we often don't have enough understanding and knowledge of the word of God to know what we hold on to is the truth of God and not false prophecies. Which is always why when somebody says, I have a word from the Lord, or I got this vision or this word that God said, it needs to be tied to scripture. It needs to be scriptural. It needs to be right from the book. If it's not, then it's not from God. Because we do believe that the canon of scripture is closed. There is no new revelation. If there's new revelation, then... One, why did God leave anything out? And why did he choose you? If he's going to leave it out, why are you the one that gets to tell me what's left out? 2,000 years, God couldn't tell me what was left out, but he picked you to tell me. So be careful about that. And I think that's what Christ is saying here. Hey, things are going to get bad. Be on guard because false prophets are coming, false Christs are coming, and they will certainly come out when times are tough. So I'm going to stop and just make a few remarks in conclusion. I think up to this point still, Christ is answering the question posed by the sign about that they're about to be accomplished. I think he's still answering that. They have immediate application to the generation Jesus is speaking to. That's why one more time still, we haven't even got to it yet. One more time in Mark, he's going to say, not one of you who are standing here will pass away until all things these things are fulfilled. And you've got to do something with that. And a lot of things have been done with it. But I think it's important if we want to try to be consistent. You may not remember this, but at the very beginning I mentioned this is a passage that many people have used to discredit Christ and the gospel and the word of God. And you say, well, why? That's a weird one. Because of that kind of stuff. Well, Jesus said none of, this, none of these people would pass away before everything happened in here. And all of y'all are saying this is about the return of Christ and he didn't come back. So Jesus is a liar or the Bible is not true. So we have to make sure we interpret it carefully is all I'm saying. Make sure it's consistent because I think the Bible is consistent. I think all these things, again, refers to the temple and the judgment of God that was falling on his people. Just like Jesus had pointed out in Matthew 23 and in Luke 17 through 20, before he gets to 21 and talks about these things, he's pronouncing these woes because all this stuff is coming. The judgment of God is coming. And his disciples want to know when, and he's telling them. And I think there's no doubt that the New Testament takes some of this language and applies it to today. 
I think as we keep reading the New Testament past the Gospels, you'll see some of these same ideas brought on to specifically talk about the return of Christ one day. When Christ comes to settle all accounts. Maybe we'll get to see some more of that and look at it and talk about it. Because I do hope you see this, even though I believe Jesus was answering their question, it does give us a lot of hope for today. Because we do know the ultimate judgment is coming. We know that a final judgment is coming. But we also can take hope that even though tribulation, which we know will also accompany the days that we live in, and will not really go away until judgment comes, we can still be encouraged in some things from this passage. Real quickly, these. Number one, God is in charge of it. Don't ever forget that. He's in charge of the desolations, the tribulations, all those things. God is in charge of it. That has to give us some hope. Secondly, God will not allow his people to be fooled, and I've already mentioned that, but that's great. We won't be fooled, deceived, or led astray by false teaching. The true people of God will not be. I saw uh, I saw something on social media. Just remind, I just thought of it, where there it says, you know, something to this effect. While the church is arguing about gender and who should be should women preach or this and that, all the while Satan has your children over here to decide deceiving them because we're we're misfocused on things that don't really matter but the whole idea of that is insane those things do matter because what matters is truth and if truth matters all truth matters i get what they were trying to say but here's the deal the people of god will not be fooled deceived or led astray that's what jesus promised so what we do is we teach the truth even in the little areas and trust that God's going to keep his people. I don't buy that real born-again people of God are leaving the church because we're trying to discern what the scriptures say about who should be a pastor of a church. I have a hard time believing you're born again if that offends you because you want to know what the truth is. You want to know what God says about these things because they do matter. Thirdly, we have no excuse not to be ready for whatever's coming. I don't think our hope should be in crazy end-time things like Jim Baker ration kits, which is a real thing if you haven't seen those. I don't think our hope should be in uh, hiding out in a bunker somewhere to make it through some great tribulation. I don't think we should be afraid at all. I remind you of the context here. Listen to some of the words of Jesus in this chapter. I just pulled out, went through the whole chapter, pulled out these phrases. See that no one leads you astray several times. Do not be alarmed, he says. Three times, he says, be on your guard, which literally means be vigilant and attentive. He says in one place here, do not be anxious. I've already said this several times. For the sake of the elect, the days of tribulation are cut short. And finally, this, three times also, he says, keep awake, stay awake which means give strict attention to what's going on around you. So six times total, Jesus says, be attentive and vigilant and give strict attention to what's going on. Now, again, I don't think that means we need to be looking around for signs. I think what he's saying is, hey, I'll give you the signs of what's coming if you want to know. They're pretty much the same as the signs have always been. 
You go back to what Daniel said, what Jeremiah said, what Ezekiel said. There was these rumblings. There were earthquakes. There was wars, rumors of war. There were these people, things happening, evil around them. Why? Because God's judgment was coming. And it comes, and when it comes, it's exact. And it does what it's supposed to do, but always after God's judgment comes his redemption of his people and restoration of his people. And so it will be one day when Christ comes, he will destroy all of his enemies, but his people will be saved. So we got good and glorious news. And there's so much more in there, but those are just some of the things. Hopefully we'll get through the next, uh, at least verse 24 through 27 next time, okay? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. And though these things are difficult to uh, sort of tread through, I think it's too important just to skip by it or summarize it, even though I keep wanting to do that in my flesh. I pray that you would help us to learn from it and be encouraged by it. Again, I don't think any of these things should bring fear to you, your people. We should be excited knowing that you're in control of, not you were in control of history and you're also in control of the future and you're in control of the present day. So help us to be reminded of that and be hopeful and live as Jesus instructed us alertly, vigilantly, ready for what's coming, whatever it is. And if it doesn't come in our lifetime, then we live the way we're called to live. We'll be just as blessed as the people in Jesus' day and the people 2,000 years from now, if it's that long, 10,000 years from now. We just pray your blessings on your church, on this fellowship, that you would continue to grow us in grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.